Good morning. Welcome to those of you joining online. It, it is great to see so many of you here in our worship auditorium today. Delighted to have you with us. And uh, before we get into the message this morning, I want to mention very quickly just a few things coming up. Uh, starting this Saturday, Christmas for the City will be held in the Benton Convention Center this coming Saturday, the 18th, from 12 to 6. This is kind of like a Christmas party for the whole city for Scythe County. Uh, and if you'd like to serve in Christmas for the city, there's still need for some volunteers. It's something our church has been involved in for years and a great way to experience worship and in very in varied ways uh, at the Benton Convention Center. That's this coming Saturday. And then one week from today, next Sunday, uh, at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon, we'll have our normal services here in the morning, but at 4.30 that afternoon, our children are doing a Christmas musical. That's why the stage has already begun to look a little bit different, as you can tell behind me here. Uh, this is a, a fun time, a beautiful time of worship with our kids, so I hope you'll join us not only Sunday morning for our regular services, but next Sunday afternoon at 4.30. And then on Christmas Eve, the 24th here, we will have three services here in our sanctuary. One at 3 p.m., 4.30, another at 7.30. The 4.30 will be a live stream and, of course, available after that to watch at any time. I hope you'll consider inviting a friend, inviting a guest who does not normally attend church. People seem to be more open to attending church on Christmas Eve than any other time except perhaps on Easter Sunday. And people who don't go to church have repeatedly said in surveys, they've indicated that they'd, they'd likely go if invited by a friend, if invited by somebody they knew. Maybe you've got a neighbor, coworker, relative, friend who doesn't go to church. This would be a great opportunity to invite them here to River Oaks. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses... Um, 67 through 79, but before we do that, I'd like to once again ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we come today in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit today would open our eyes as the psalmist wrote that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Use your word to teach us to equip us, to wash us, to strengthen us. And above all, Lord, we pray that when we leave here today, we will have grown to know you better and love you more. And we pray in your great name. Amen. This Advent season, we're studying Luke chapters 1 and 2, the Advent passages, the events surrounding Jesus' birth, and in Luke chapters 1 and 2, there are really uh, two different uh, stories unfolding at the same time. One has to do with the uh, conception and arrival of John the Baptist. The other has to do uh, with Mary and Joseph, the conception, and then the birth of, of course, the baby Jesus. Because Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, were relatives uh, Jesus and John were essentially related as well. Now, in our passage today, we're reading about uh, words spoken by a man named Zechariah. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you may know that Zechariah be the father of John the Baptist. 
His account begins in Luke chapter 1, and we're told that Zechariah was a priest, and it was his time to offer incense in the temple as people were praying outside. And as Zechariah's offering incense, an angel comes to him. And uh, the scripture tells us that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were godly people. They were righteous people, but they were elderly, they had no children, and they were well beyond the age of being able to have children. So while Zechariah is ministering to the Lord, offering incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel comes to him and speaks to him and tells him that uh, his wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and they're going to have a son. They're to name the boy John. And Zechariah replies, well, um, how shall I know this? Because I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And because you didn't believe my words, you're not going to be able to speak until that comes to pass. And so his wife conceives. Zechariah is unable to speak. And then the baby John is born. And on the eighth day after John's birth, we're told later in Luke chapter 1, that they brought John to be circumcised. And apparently the community kind of gathered together for this time because it was also the time when the baby would be named. And so as uh, the baby is born, they bring him to be circumcised. The community gathers around. They would have called him Zachariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name's going to be John. And their friends and neighbors reply, nobody in your, your family's name, John. Why do you want to name him that? And, and Zachariah, who still couldn't speak, took a little writing tablet and said, his name is John. And then his mouth opened and he began to speak. Some people wonder why God struck this man with the inability to speak for nine months as a punishment. Perhaps it was not a punishment for his wife. Perhaps it was a blessing in disguise. We don't know. But regardless, when he spoke, it was a sign to all these people gathered around that God was doing something great and supernatural. So as Zechariah spoke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy. And we read these words in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, and now he's addressing the baby, John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This prophecy by John the Baptist is sometimes called the Benedictus because uh, the first word of the prophecy is blessed. So that Latin word Benedictus is sometimes used for this beautiful inspired 
speech, but it's so much more than just beautiful words. Uh, it teaches us a lot about Jesus. And in this inspired uh, prophetic word, Zechariah is anticipating the careers of both John the Baptist and Jesus, but he's majoring mostly on Jesus. And it's interesting that John emphasizes, Zechariah emphasizes rather in this prophecy that God is now doing something he foretold, something that God spoke of long ago. And he emphasizes it with three different statements in this prophecy. God foretold what he would do, number one, because he spoke by the prophets. Zechariah says what he's doing now, what is unfolding, the birth of John, the soon birth of Jesus, is something God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. What God is doing in the advent, he foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. The advent now is bringing together Old and New Testaments, bridging them, looking back to the old and anticipating what Jesus would do in the new. God foretold what he would do by the prophets, further by the forefathers. John notes he promised the forefathers uh, to show the mercy, he says, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Who are the fathers? They're the patriarchs, the forefathers of the Jewish faith. People Jews look back to in their history, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people to whom God himself spoke and he made promises. He dealt with them. He revealed himself to them. And Zechariah is saying, these promises of old that we've studied in the scrolls, the scriptures of the Old Testament, God's fulfilling them now. He's bringing about, about that now. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of so many of these promises made. And then thirdly, he speaks very specifically about what God swore to Abraham. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God made very specific promises to Abraham in the Old Testament, none greater than the promises found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, there we find one of the most highly significant promises God makes in all of Scripture when he tells Abraham that he's going to have offspring, descendants, even though he, like Zechariah, was older, and his wife Sarah was beyond the age of having children, and they had no children. He was going to have offspring. He said, through your offspring, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I say that promise is highly significant because it would be fulfilled in Jesus and in his coming, not just his coming, but the work he would do to bring about the fullness of what we call the gospel that would go to all nations. I think you'll see on the screen a verse from the New Testament book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul writes these words. The scripture, foreseeing, that is looking ahead, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. To justify means to, to not only forgive, but to consider righteous. Foreseeing that God would do that, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 when he said, Abraham and you, through your seed, through your descendants, through your offspring, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. God preached the gospel to Abraham 
This is the oath, the promise sworn to Abraham and Zechariah saying, it's happening now. I'm sure Zechariah didn't understand the details, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's prophesying. Paul goes on to explain that in this gospel, Christ will have redeemed us from the curse of the law. When he dies on a tree and sheds his blood, redemption will be accomplished. He will redeem us so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, even the non-Jews. So, God foretold it, now he's doing it. And then Zechariah gets very specific in his prophecy. And he focuses on God's promises to his people, promises associated with the coming, the living, the sacrifice of the life of Jesus Christ, this redemption that he would accomplish. God's promises are emphasized in Zechariah's prophecy in these ways. Number one, redemption to save us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, Zechariah said, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Many of the Jews who were looking for the Messiah in biblical times were anticipating a great political ruler, perhaps a great king like King David in the Old Testament, someone who would restore the glory to the nation of Israel, to their land, uh, perhaps a great military ruler, like the rulers God raised up in the Old Testament book of Judges. When the Israelites would be oppressed, they'd cry out to God, God would raise up a Samson or a Gideon or a Deborah, someone who would, who would defeat the enemy and bring liberty to the Jews. They were looking for somebody like this to, to bring about a great kingdom for Israel. But this redemption is different. And it's clear before Jesus even comes in Zechariah's words when he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And he speaks of it as if it's already done in past or past perfect tense. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Literal reading would be, he has visited and made redemption, made redemption for his people. God himself has visited. God himself is coming. God himself is making redemption and raising up a horn of salvation. When you read the word horn in the Bible, it's kind of a strange word to our ears. What's a horn of salvation? Think of strength. Horn in, in Scripture, like in the book of Psalms, and here typically implies God's strength. God is showing strength of salvation in a house of his servant David. What is this redemption? When God's coming and making redemption, what is this? Is it a military or political salvation? No. Zechariah, in his prophecy, makes it really clear in verse 77 to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This redemption is not victory over the Romans. It's not establishing a great new Jewish king like David, a ruler. This is something better. This is something lasting. This is something that lasts beyond this life. This is redemption that is eternal. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, there's a, there's a lot spoken about Jesus' work of redemption. And I think you'll see on the screen a, a, a verse from Hebrews 9, or verse 12, tells us that Jesus, after shedding his blood, 
presenting his blood before God the Father, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. And in doing that, in shedding Jesus' blood, he provided not a temporary redemption like we might get with a new king or military ruler, but an eternal redemption. If Jesus just came to set up a Jewish kingdom and you were a Jew at that time and you lived for 30 more years, you might experience a 30-year redemption. If you live for 50 more years, it might be a 50-year redemption. But what Jesus provided for you and me is an eternal redemption. When you receive Jesus and what he did on the cross, you embrace his salvation, his lordship. You're redeemed by his blood. To redeem in biblical times often referred to buying someone out, like buying someone out of slavery. And Peter the Apostle would say, we were redeemed not with things like gold and silver. No, we were redeemed with something better. The precious blood of Christ is a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were redeemed. And Zechariah said, God has now come himself. He's visited and he's made redemption for his people. He's raised up the strength of salvation force. And that salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. When you put your faith in Jesus, his blood, his own blood, is paid for your sins. And that is an eternal redemption. So Zechariah is saying God's promises are redemption to save us, but there's more. There's also deliverance to free us, as we read in verses 74 and uh, 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, again, the deliverance brought by Jesus would not be a military or a political deliverance. It would be something more, something greater, something that would last. Well, not deliverance from the Romans. In fact, followers of Jesus embracing his redemption might even be persecuted more by the Romans as well as others as followers of Jesus Christ. I think this deliverance is, again, best described in the book of Hebrews, a book that deals much with God's redeeming work through Jesus. And you'll see on the screen a verse from uh, the reference says Luke chapter 1. That's actually Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and it reads, Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. In other words, that's why Jesus came in the advent, the incarnation, God coming in flesh. Since we were flesh and blood, the Son of God came in flesh and blood. Why? So that through his death, his death on the cross, the shedding of his blood, where he redeemed us, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Now, what enemy is he talking about here? That is the devil. And deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a deliverance that Jesus brings. Deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. The apostle Paul would later write, when you, when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are delivered from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. You might not look any different. Your outward circumstances of life might be no different. 
but you're now a member of a new kingdom. And you don't need to live in fear of death because there is an eternal redemption that has been made for you by God himself. God has made it. God has made this redemption for you. And Jesus doesn't just deliver us from Satan, from his kingdom, and from fear of death. He delivers us from that, yes, but he delivers us into something. And that is his kingdom. It is Zechariah prophesies that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We're delivered for a purpose. We're delivered into the kingdom of God so we can serve God, live for God without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days. In other words, Jesus delivers us into a life of devotion to God. Some people, occasionally someone will ask the question, if Jesus provided everything for us when he died on the cross, shed his blood, was raised from the dead, our salvation's free. We don't earn it by our, our good deeds, good works, good efforts, good intention. If it's free, why should I serve God? Why should I obey? The answer is very simple. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my words. The motivation for serving Jesus is love for Jesus. It's gratitude. Someone says to me, oh, I, I believe in him, but I'm going to do what I want. I'll disobey him all I want. I'll, I'll live the way I want. I have to conclude, I, I don't think that person really knows him. I don't think they really understand the gospel because if they did, there's a gratitude. There's a love for him that makes you want to serve him. Our, our living before God in, in righteousness and holiness is based on gratitude, loving gratitude for him. And Jesus, when he delivers us from Satan's power and from bondage to sin, <clears throat> delivers us to freedom in serving God and loving God. And then thirdly, God's third promise here highlighted by Zechariah is this. Not only redemption to save us, deliverance to free us, but light to guide us. I love the way he draws this prophecy to an end. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise from on high shall visit us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The advent of Jesus is associated with light. The whole account seems to be associated with light. When the Magi, in, in the book of Matthew, the wise men are, are sent to find where the Christ child is, they're guided by a, a bright star on a dark night. When the shepherds in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 are in the, in the field, it's an angel that shines brightly as they're out in the, the fields at night to guide them. And we put lights on our trees and, and lights on candles when we celebrate Christmas, the advent of Jesus, and I think it's appropriate. The Old Testament prophet <clears throat> said of his coming, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and Zechariah says it beautifully, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. I love that phrase, don't you? The sunrise from on high. He might have gotten it from the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, very last book, the very last chapter where the prophet said, for you who fear my name, 
the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's associated with life. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, would write these words. He's writing about John the Baptist when he says in John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, and notice the references to light. John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and that was and is Jesus. This is why in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus not only came to make redemption for us by his blood, to deliver us, free us from bondage to the fear of death, from Satan and his kingdom, came to give us light so that we could walk with God in life. And if we follow Christ, we don't walk in darkness. And when the Bible talks about walking, it's typically talking about the way we live our lives, not our literal footsteps. And he guides us into the way of peace. As we reflect on these things, I'd like to raise two questions this morning by way of application. The first one is this. Have I received the redemption that Jesus came to provide? Not asking whether you believe in God. I don't mean to say this disrespectfully, but even the devil believes in God. That's what the Apostle James himself says. Believing in God's not enough to make you a Christian. Even believing Jesus was a real historical person. But putting your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, the fact that he shed his blood to redeem you for your sins, repenting of sin and putting faith in him, saying, Lord, I believe and I receive, as Scripture says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then secondly, am I walking in his light and peace? The book of 1 John, the Apostle John would later write, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, communion. We have fellowship with one, one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is not only about our relationship with God, the vertical one, that's course critically and most important but also our horizontal relationships we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another this advent season can be a time of reconciliation if you're a christian and there's another christian somewhere with whom you are seriously at odds i'd put it this way is there another christian you couldn't pray with or you couldn't sit down and have a meal with If so, let this be a time by the power of Jesus' Holy Spirit and by the work accomplished by His blood that you take the steps you can take toward reconciliation. Do what you can do. We walk in His light and walk in His peace. Let's pray about that this morning.
Father, I pray for anyone here in our sanctuary or joining us online who has never put his or her faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that you would draw that person by your spirit today to truly yield to Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that the Holy Spirit lead us further into walking in the light of your truth. And Lord, that you would guide our feet into the way of peace. Through faith, we have peace with you, Lord Jesus provided that. But would you enable us to have peace with every other person who calls you Lord? And where we need to repent and where we need to reconcile and where we need to make efforts to be at peace with others, may we do that for the glory of your great name. Amen.